media consumers, this is the Press Box. Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker here. Our topic is once again the protests in response to the killing of George Floyd. We'll talk to Philadelphia Inquirer columnist Will Bunch about police unions. How did unions get us to this spot in American life? And how could they prevent future efforts at reform? Also, New York Times editorial page editor James Bennett has resigned after publishing an op-ed by Tom Cotton. David and I discuss whether we're going to see a massive change in the way op-ed sections are run. First, we welcome Jamel Hill. She's a writer at The Atlantic, host of the Jamel Hill is Unbothered podcast, and also co-host of the Ringer podcast, The Wire, Way Down in the Hole. Thank you for doing this, Jamel. Thank you for having me. George Floyd was killed by a Minneapolis police officer on May 25th. The protests are now in their 14th day with huge crowds over the weekend from L.A. to Philadelphia. I first want to ask you this. What is striking to you about where the protests are now, both from the scenes we see on TV and their effects beyond that? Um, Certainly the length of time, as you just noted, for this to have gone on now for two weeks. uh, I certainly expect that people in the moment and in the aftermath to be so emotionally um, affected by this tragedy that the momentum would certainly be there. But I never expected it to sustain for as long as it did. And I'll have to say that I think um, also the fact that the nature of the protest has changed has really been as effective, I think, as the unrest part of the protest. It's like it's in two different parts. It's like part one, a lot of unrest, a lot of rebellion. Um, you know, it, it was certainly more of a, of a physical, you know, nature with property being destroyed and all those kinds of things. And then there, and, and obviously clashes with the police, which are still happening, but a little bit less than it was at the beginning. And now it's changed into a full-scale wholesale movement, what you saw in Philadelphia, what you've seen in D.C., what you've seen in Los Angeles, where you're getting thousands of people who are galvanized behind this issue. And I don't think I ever expected this level of participation and certainly not for there to be this much diverse participation because in Ferguson, it was clearly an issue that Black Lives Matter, Black people were fighting for and there was not a lot of white people who were involved or that you could see in some of the images from television. And now you're seeing a cross-section of people who are involved in this issue. That change in the nature of the protest you mentioned, what do you attribute that to? Well, I think once, to some degree, um, the feelings calm down, and I also think the fact that all four of the Minneapolis police officers involved in George Floyd's murder, the fact that they were all arrested and charged, I think that had a lot to do with why um, you've seen the unrest settle a little bit. It went from, we're angry about what's happened, uh, the lack of justice, and now that we have the world's attention what do we plan to do with this power and how can we use this power to really institute some long lasting change? And so uh, it, it's kind of almost like um, the, the stages of grief, if you will. Like once the anger subsides, there comes a level of, okay, how do we move on in a way that's productive and carries this spirit of what these protests are about with us? So a lot of it had to do with them feeling as if some semblance of justice was taking place, even though not all justice has been meted out at this point. Do you see this as, do you see, uh, we talked to our uh, ringer writer, Tyler Tynes about this last week. Uh, is this a straight line 
from previous protests, previous tragedies in the past? I mean, do you see or what, what's different this time? Why do you feel like there are so many more people on the streets? Why do you feel like change is actually occurring or seems to be on the precipice of occurring right now? Well, I think a lot of it had to do that it, with the fact that it's not just black people and the nature of what we saw. Now, this is not the first time that an injustice has been captured on video. And but with this one, there was no yeah, but there was no yeah, but you could say. Right. And as disgusting to me as it was that whether it be Mike Brown or Tamir Rice, even um, Sandra Bland, there was always somebody trying to argue against what video clearly showed. And there were not enough people who frankly saw it as a injustice and a tragedy. With George Floyd, there's nothing in that video that you can point to and say he did something wrong. And even if he had, that doesn't mean he deserves to be executed on the street. But the, I think just the visceral reaction that we all had, it was, you know, this cop leaning on his neck for, you know, nearly nine minutes and in his face showing that he could have given less than a fuck about George Floyd. And just, it looked like Tuesday to him. We're watching somebody murdered and executed on the street. It looked like Tuesday to this dude. So it's the reaction of the officers around him. It's George Floyd crying out for his mother. It's several inhumanities that take place within the larger scale of one massive inhumanity. And I think it just really touched a different nerve with a lot of people who were not willing to be involved before. And then once they were involved, they started adding up all the other evidence, all the other names that I mentioned. And this was coming off just in recent months, Ahmaud Arbery executed in the street in a modern day lynching. Breonna Taylor losing her life over a botched raid of complete police incompetence, which seems to happen to people of color, black people, let me be specific, more so than anybody else. So you had all these incidents, we still have the past, and I think it just reached a, a tipping point for people where even those who wanted to stay silent or uninvolved, or at least in the middle, if there ever was such a thing, they decided, you know what, at some point it is what it is. And so either I'm going to be on the right side of this thing or I'm going to be someone who's silent and perpetually feels as if this is what should happen to a marginalized group in this country. I want to ask you about NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell. Goodell was something less than an ally, to use a word I heard a lot this week, to Colin Kaepernick back in 2016 and other protesting NFL players after that. Yet here was Roger Goodell Friday night. We're going to play a very short clip of what he said. We, the National Football League, condemn racism and the systematic oppression of black people. We, the National Football League, admit we were wrong for not listening to NFL players earlier and encourage all to speak out and peacefully protest. We, the National Football League, believe black lives matter. I personally protest with you and want to be part of the much needed change in this country. Jamel, how much stock do you put in that? This is quite an interesting 2020 bingo card. I don't think I would have had Taylor Swift <laughs> attacking white supremacy and the president. And now you have Roger Goodell apologizing to black people. Didn't see this one coming, right? So I have mixed feelings about his quote unquote apology. Mixed feelings because the person he needed to apologize for, apologize to rather, was Colin Kaepernick. Um, he played a significant role, him and the other 32 owners, but let's not let them off the hook. Um, they destroyed this man's career 
for speaking out against the very same thing that happened to George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery. And that's never going to be made right. As Even when Colin Kaepernick, even should he somehow magically wind up back in the NFL, it's still not going to make it right. Um, and so his apology, I guess I always judge people. What do you do when it's not so convenient? And we saw what Roger Goodell did. We saw what the NFL did. When Donald Trump was using Colin Kaepernick's protests and the protests of the players against social injustice and police brutality, the NFL withered. They did not stand with their players. And I don't know if they ever get past that moment because once you've exposed what you will do when things get difficult, you can't walk that back. You had one moment in history to make this right, to stand on the right side of history, and you did everything wrong, and you don't get a second chance. And it just they just have to accept that. So there is no amount of apology that Roger Goodell can do in my eyes that's ever going to correct that. Um, and then we'll see what happens going forward. There's a lot of players that are talking about how they're going to be kneeling in protest when football resumes. What is he going to do then? Donald Trump's not letting this go. He's made this clear with his tweets. And certainly as we get closer to the election, I anticipate he'll be even more aggressive because he feels like this is an episode or this is an issue he has won on unlike a lot of other issues that have been more polarizing. Uh, what are the other owners going to do? Because this is not just about Roger Goodell. Roger Goodell is a figurehead for the NFL. That's not to imply that he doesn't you know, have meaningful responsibilities, but he can't make 32 owners sign Colin, uh, sign Colin Kaepernick. And there's still a, a huge percentage of them that give money to Donald Trump, who have played both sides of the fence, giving money to Donald Trump like Stephen Ross, but yet having the nerve to have some uh, an organization that's ad uh, addressing inequality. So you can't feed inequality on one, on one end and then try to change it on the other end. That doesn't even make any sense. So we have a lot of them who are in that bubble. And are they willing to not support Donald Trump? Are they willing to stop giving it to his campaign? Because he's actively against these issues that they say they stand with Black people on. So I don't judge people by what they say. I judge them by what they do. And based off the actions of the NFL, they deserve no benefit of the doubt when it comes to this. Let's talk about another powerful institution, your former employer, ESPN. Um, you had a, you know, a, a fairly particular role for yourself, uh, a, a particular role carved out there where you were both a journalist by any definition, an on-air on personality, but you also spoke truth to power in a way that very few other people on that use that platform to do. What do you feel like, well, I guess I should say when you left, a lot of people, myself included, felt like it was, I don't know, the end of an era or just a huge missed opportunity for ESPN in general. But what do you feel like the role of ESPN is or any co corporation like ESPN that broadcasts games, that deals with the NFL, that deals with these issues uh, directly or indirectly? What do you think their role should be right now? Well, I mean, ESPN has always had a complicated role in that they're trying to cover and criticize and critique, rather, the same people they're in business with. So it's hard to exist in a clean way when you're, you know, giving money or uh, you're part of the sports economy on one end with the games and the and broadcasting rights. And then you also have this other arm that has a journalistic purpose. And they often have to make difficult choices and they're not always on the side of journalism. I mean, we've seen countless examples of this. And so I guess I was more relieved to see ESPN actually not just engaging in the conversations that people ha are having now, but engaging in them in a meaningful, critical way. 
And over a period of time, they could have easily rushed past this. I'm not necessarily giving them credit. I'm more just surprised because obviously when I left, there was a lot of conversations in the company, a lot of broader conversations for people who whose job it is um, to critique ESPN, who saw that they had clearly made a shift. I mean, clearly that happened. And they did not want to be involved in some of these messier issues of race, sports, and politics and gender. And they kind of made that clear. And so to see them kind of go back the other way, I I think has been um, a relief. But again, kind of like with the NFL, I don't judge you by what you do when it's convenient. See, public, the, the only thing that's changed is that public opinion has changed. And that now that the public seems to be more open to having this conversation and that you have major corporation heads talking about Black Lives Matter actually saying Black Lives Matter, right? And you didn't have that before. Before you were a little bit out on your own and you were out on a limb. So if you said Black Lives Matter or if you talked about police brutality, any of these issues, you were going to get a lot of blowback. And so, while I'm relieved more so for my colleagues because they get an opportunity to say a lot of things or my former colleagues, they get an opportunity to say some things they've always wanted to say and to show a level of vulnerability and humanity that I don't think that they had often been given permission to showcase. I'm happy they're able to uh, lend their voice to this issue. But again, I'm going to judge you by what you do when it's not convenient. And so when the games come back and we have results and championships and debates about LeBron versus Jordan to distract us, are they just going to go back to being the same old ESPN of just the facts mail? I don't know. I thought about this this weekend, Jamel. We saw the New York Times employees. There was that op-ed by Tom Cotton. They got together. They used their collective power. Editor wound up resigning. Philadelphia Inquirer, pretty similar thing, right? That buildings matter to headline editor winds up resigning. You're a former newspaper person. You know, this could ESPN employees, do you think use their collective power in that same way? So just to give people some insight, because I often got asked this question when I was at ESPN, not as much now that I'm not there. So when things like that happen, and I'll give you an example, the, um, the fantasy football auction that ESPN had that wound up pissing off a lot of people, rightly so, because it looked like a slave auction. And the fact that nobody there thought we have a bunch of white people sitting in the audience bidding on players and no one considered what the optics of that would look like. It was a lot of things that allowed that to become a major disaster um, and bad optics for ESPN. Understand every time something like that happens, the black employees inside of ESPN and some of the white ones, just to be fair here, raise hell. We always did. There was never, it's just publicly people didn't find out about it. We chose to handle it more internally. And that was, that was the difference. There was a lot of conversations, a lot of meetings, a lot of I'm sorry's that occurred as a result. And so a lot of times when people would ask me, like, why don't, you know, I guess they expected me to be on SportsCenter saying, let me tell you, let me tell these, uh, you know, these um, senior managers here at ESPN where they could take this damn face. Like, you weren't going to say, like, you can't really commentate on yourself. You know what I'm saying? Like it would have just been kind of odd, right? But where some of that is just the dynamics of the different type of of corporation that ESPN is, as opposed to a newspaper, if you will. Um, I do think that those conversations are definitely taking place. Not I think, I know they are because I still have friends there inside of ESPN and for that matter, inside of Disney, where you have some black employees there who feel now energized and empowered to deal with some of the issues and lack of diversity and inclusion inside of ESPN. Because 
the thing is like the people have to understand this is much more than about who you see on first take and who you see on sports center espn presents a very pretty team picture when you look at the talent it looks very diverse you have women you have you know latino women you have black women you have a, a very a, a, you know by standards of other networks espn's team picture looks pretty good start peeling back a layer or two ask them how many coordinating producers they have ask them how many uh senior roles that black people have when it comes to content decisions that's where they are should be embarrassed frankly and so those are the conversations that need to take place inside the building or or just need to take place period inside of both disney and uh, ESPN, because I said this on Twitter, all these companies and corporations that are tweeting out these wonderful diversity statements and talking about who they stand with, show me your organization chart before you start having this conversation. Before you start putting out statements, let's look at what your senior leadership at your company looks like. And I'm going to tell you, those two things do not match. It's only four Black uh, CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. So I know most of y'all that put out the statement, it didn't match. So to me, that's where the hard work has to be done for any corporation, but in particular at ESPN. And I was proud to see at the New York Times and, and to some degree also in Pittsburgh too, where there's another situation, yeah, that's that's bubbling and that's disgraceful. And also the Philadelphia Inquirer, as I said this when I was on CNN a few days ago, and it's true, it's like journal, being a journalist is a job of agitation. Like we're not supposed to, people aren't, aren't supposed to like us. We're supposed to hold the powerful accountable. That's the job because usually the truth does just by the extension of, of telling a fair and accurate story is that it usually holds people accountable who don't want to be held accountable. And when I was in newspapers, the funny thing is we used to fight about that stuff all the time. Like whenever the paper did something that, you know, that the journalists I worked with thought was out of line, inappropriate, tone deaf, whatever category you want to put it in. It was always newsroom battles like that. And I kind of missed that, frankly, being at ESPN because it was just a much, it was a really corporate structure. And so it just happened differently. But, you know, in newspapers, you just raise hell and that's just how it is. <laughs> and so I was really proud of, of my journalistic colleagues for holding their paper accountable and, frankly, getting results. That's why you're seeing resignations and that's why you're seeing, you know, um, uh, major apologies being done. That's kind of what you're supposed to do, even by, even with the people who sign your checks. Before we go, Jamel, we might have already said this off, off the air, but I want to ask you one more time. Senator Chuck Schumer from New York made a particular <laughs> sartorial choice today. <laughs> what What is your take on uh, on that? <laughs> so I feel like I've I've in the last. For context, in the last week, I've had more conversations with well-intentioned white folks than I probably ever have in my life. <laughs> and I appreciate it. I mean, a lot of them are really good friends of mine. One friend in particular, buddy of mine I've known for 20 years, another journalist, and he's calling and apologizing to me for things he ain't even did. And I'm just like, bro, slow down. You know, and a couple incidents where he felt like he could have had my back and he didn't. And we talked it out and and everything like that. And then just, it was a daily thing where white people are like texting me, you know, like, are you fine? Are you okay? I just want you to know I'm here for you. I'm like, all right, <laughs> cool. <laughs> My cash app is, but anyway, um, so there has been, and I know it comes from a good place, but I'm going to need white people to kind of slow down a little bit <laughs> and 
Chuck Schumer was unfortunately an example of this. Now I realize this came from the Congressional Black Caucus. So he wasn't led down this road by himself. And unfortunately he was led down this road by other black people. The police reform that they're proposing, the policies, all great. That's the stuff that matters. I don't need you to dress like you just came from a field trip in Ghana to to visually make me understand you are with Black people, all right? Shout out to the late John Witherspoon. You ain't got to coordinate, all right? You don't have to say, you know what? For them to believe I really am with these Black people, let me go out and get some kente cloth. I'm like, what y'all coming with next? Are we going to see like a dashiki, an afro? Like, what is happening? So I just didn't need them to sell it that hard. Like, we got you, Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi. Got you. You with us. Understood. We don't need you to also outfit yourself as you are presenting important reform that will uh, certainly serve as major support to the Black community. I mean, it, I guess I, I, I guess you let us see it. Like, I'm glad that they took it that far, but it's like, relax, people. Relax, white people. <laughs> <laughs> you can read Jamel Hill at The Atlantic, listen to her podcast on Spotify. Thank you, as always, Jamel, for doing this. I appreciate it. Thank you guys for having me. (laughs) All right, David, we're going to talk to Will Bunch of the Philadelphia Inquirer. But first, this message from Roman. You've been dealing with acne, redness, dark spots, or wrinkles. Finding treatment that works can be complicated. You need skincare that actually performs, but getting started can be overwhelming. Thankfully, there's a solution. Roman makes it convenient to get customized prescription skincare that really performs. Just grab your phone or computer, complete a free online consultation, and you'll hear back from a U.S. licensed physician within 24 hours. If appropriate, a doctor will prescribe a custom blended treatment based on your skin type and priorities. You'll receive your custom skincare treatment with free two-day shipping. You also get free unlimited follow-ups with your doctor if you need to make a change to your treatment or have any questions. With Roman, there are no commitments and you can cancel anytime. In celebration of Men's Health Month, Roman is offering $20 off new treatment during the month of June. Go to GetRoman.com slash PressBox for $20 off any new treatment and free two-day shipping. That's GetRoman.com slash PressBox. Eligibility requirements and additional terms may apply. All right, David, a huge shadow during the last couple of weeks has been cast by police unions. Bob Kroll, head of the Minneapolis Police Union, mm-hmm. we found out or were reminded was at a campaign event with Donald Trump. Or how about those officers who were arrested for shoving a 75-year-old man in Buffalo? <laughs> and then when they came out of the courthouse, everyone applauded. There was a really good column, I thought, on Sunday by Will Bunch of the Philadelphia Inquirer about the specter of these unions. We brought him on to talk about their power and where they go from here. All right, Will, let's start with the protests in Philadelphia. Watching TV over the weekend, there was that amazing nearly mile-long crowd that started on the steps of the art museum. And it's always interesting to me how the character of protests has differed slightly from city to city over the last week. What did you notice when you were out there about how the protests were resonating in Philadelphia? Well, a couple of things, Brian. I mean, first of all, it was just the size, as you mentioned. I mean, um, I, I was here in 2015 when Pope Francis visited Philadelphia and had a mass at pretty much the same location as that protest. 
And I would say this crowd was as big, if not bigger than, than that crowd. So we're talking about tens and tens of thousands of people. And, and, and the other thing, and I don't think this is unique to Philadelphia though, but I, it, it is striking to go out in these crowds and just notice the diversity. Uh, I mean, certainly very multiracial. Um, he was a little bit young. I'd say people in the 20 to 35 age bracket, but really people of all ages, um, uh, people who haven't been to protests before, um, you know, really just something the likes of, of that we haven't seen in this country. I mean, at least in 50 years, it's really unbelievable. One of the amazing sights about the last week is the number of statues that have come down, not only in America, but there's actually one in England, too. In Philadelphia, we saw this with Frank Rizzo, former mayor and police commissioner. Uh, a statue of Rizzo was removed near City Hall last week. A mural in the Italian market was painted over on Sunday. For those of us who are not Philadelphians, what is the resonance of taking down a Frank Rizzo statue? Well, Frank Rizzo was a very divisive figure in this city. You know, he was the uh, police commissioner in the 1960s. He was mayor in the 1970s. And at that time, he was basically hated by half the city and loved by half the city. I mean, and you have to understand the half that loved him, um, the city's ethnic population. I mean, he was the first Italian-American mayor. He was part of the law and order, tough on crime movement in the 70s. I mean, uh, not only was he like Richard Nixon, he was actually friends with Richard Nixon and a political associate. And um, the, the thing that's so striking is, like I said, I mean, at that time, he was beloved by half the city. And there was always this fear of, you know, insulting the, the pro-Rizzo part of the city if, if the statue was taken down or if the mural was painted over. And uh, in this week, those two things both happened in a matter of days. And there's really no negative outcry about it at all. I mean, if anybody felt offended by taking the statue down, they, they kept silent. And it, it just shows what a revolutionary change there's been uh, in 2020. Uh, it's really it's really remarkable how quickly these things happen and, and with such little such little backlash. You devoted your Sunday column in the Inquirer to police unions. Uh, you wrote that in certain cases, they actually act like the mafia. How do police unions act like the mafia? Well, in some cases, they act like they're running a protection racket. Um, you know, when um, certain local businesses have taken actions that seem to be supportive of the protests of Black Lives Matter, they've actually been threatened with actions like boycotts uh, by the police unions and, and presumably the people who support them. So, so for example, we had a, a, a very popular uh, food purveyor in South Philadelphia, the Italian, uh, traditionally Italian neighborhood that for a time was for a few days was giving free lunch to cops. Um, some of their younger staff members protested. And so th they stopped doing that. And as a result, police said, you know, posted on Twitter against them, uh, said they were going to boycott them. You had on conservative talk radio, they were saying, Oh, we're done with, with this, the Bruno brothers, this, uh, this story that had done that, uh, Delaware County, the suburbs of Philadelphia, same thing. A shop owner, uh, put something on Facebook in support of black lives matter. And, a uh, high-ranking police union official was on Facebook saying, you know, you know, we could ruin your business, basically. And, um, um, you know, so so it's like protection racket in that sense. And the other sense is just the extreme lengths they, they go to uh, rally behind their members who've been accused of brutality and misconduct. Yeah, the quote from Delaware County was, try us, we'll destroy you, <laughs> which is not okay, <laughs> especially not okay for someone in a police union. Yeah, he, he did delete that. But, but you know, it, and, and it's not just businesses, uh, Brian. You know, I mean, 
look at look at some of these political leaders like Bill de Blasio or or even even in Buffalo where the police union has rallied behind these two cops that we saw on video uh, shoving this 75 year old peace activist to the ground, uh, which just seemed like maybe the most outrageous police misconduct uh, captured on film this week, which is saying something. And and you know I saw the mayor of Buffalo on TV and and. He was just very reluctant to criticize the police, despite what everybody saw on that videotape. And I mean, I, I felt like I was watching a hostage video at times. And, and uh, you know, Bill de Blasio, the mayor of New York, same thing, you know, so much brutality by his force captured on film. And he's very reluctant to criticize these officers. And I, I think that just shows the power, uh, you know, the kind of political and just the intimidating power of these police unions. So that's the real question, right? Because we've now seen police reform efforts at the federal level, at the state level, at the city level. But going forward, police unions are going to be a major potential roadblock, and not just in terms of cowing politicians, as you mentioned in that case, but in other ways, too. How will they go about, do you think, maybe trying to get in the way of reform? Well, I, I think they're going to try and cling to, to the way that they've blocked reform in the past, which is uh, through their union contracts. You know, it's a lot of this is just not a simple matter of legislators or, or city councils passing laws. Uh, these things are parts of their uh, labor contracts that they negotiate with these cities and municipalities, particularly in the area of, of arbitration, which means that, um, you know, when, when a cop uh, commits an act of severe misconduct or brutality or uh, is involved in a police shooting, um, you know, that the commissioner can fire them or discipline them. And they have the right to appeal this to an arbitrator. And these hearings are usually secret, secretive, um, and um, uh, they're also set up in a way that they're often stacked in favor of the cops. I mean, we, we've had so many officers here in Philadelphia, you know, captured on tape, punching people and all kinds of misconduct uh, who've been reinstated by these arbitration panels. And they're part of the union contract. So the, the only way to change them is to pressure your mayor or your elected officials to take a tougher stance in these contract negotiations. That's what it's all going to come down to. When we talk about efforts at reform, we hear words like defund, reform, abolish. At the end of the day, it all comes down to essentially the mayor in a bargaining agreement. That's what it is. To me, that's probably the biggest obstacle. But, you know, I, I also think it's not an insurmountable obstacle because, um, you know, I mean, voters can always elect a new mayor who says, Look, this is a, this is a priority for me. I'm going to take a tough stance, and you know, I'll negotiate. You know, maybe maybe we can find other areas, you know, where we can give police a pay raise. I think I think a lot of people don't object to police officers being paid fairly for a day's work. You know, um, uh, you know, most blue collar workers in America probably deserve pay raises, but but police are not like you know the United Steelworkers, or they're not like the UAW. Um, uh, because they have the power to commit state-sanctioned violence. It's a different situation. I mean, and so the fact that we can't we can't discipline or we can't get at them when they commit these acts of misconduct because of what's in their contract, that just goes beyond the normal labor relations in this country. You know what? You know, and and, and even some labor unions are starting to question this. You know, um, uh, it's it's just something that's got to change. I think one of the more jaw-dropping figures we've been talking about over the last week plus is Minneapolis's Bob Kroll, who is the president of the police union there, 
actually spoke at a Trump rally. So not just kind of kind of a political actor, actually a political actor at a Trump rally. What do you make of him? Yeah. And, and also, you know, other other FOP chapters like ours in Philadelphia also endorsed Trump. So it's not it's not just the Minneapolis. But, you know, he uh, uh, Bob Cole was elected head of the police union in Minneapolis in 2015 because they had a new commissioner who was talking about reform. And you also had, uh, you know, America's first black president, Barack Obama, who was in D.C., embracing some mild versions of police reform. And, um, uh, you know, these officers circled the wagon. They elected Bob Cole because he took a really tough stance and, and uh, you know, was just aggressively resistant to these things. And, you know, when he spoke at the Trump rally, he said, uh, you know, thank God for President Trump. He's, he's, taking the handcuff, he's taking the handcuffs off of us put them on criminals, which is kind of chilling words when you think about what happened to George Floyd six months later. Um, uh, but that's how these cops feel. They feel like any effort to, um, uh, you know, discipline, to get rid of the cops that we call bad apples, for better or worse, uh, you know, they feel they're being persecuted. They, have, they, have, they seem to have an ex- extreme persecution complex. And, uh, I mean, they really fight back aggressively against any, any and all efforts to reform this part of the system. One last question before we let you go, Will. Your paper, the Philadelphia Inquirer, ran a headline over an architecture's critics column last Tuesday that said buildings matter too, which was a riff on Black Lives Matter. Yeah. A couple of days later, the paper's editor, Stan Wisnowski, resigned. What do you make of those events? Well, this, this is something that a lot of us in the business have been talking about for years. Um, you know, when it comes to race, when it comes to diversity, um, uh, news organizations have lagged behind where they are nowhere near where they should be on that front. And, you know, that plays out in a number of ways. I mean, we need more newsroom leaders, top editors, uh, uh, to not be white, to not be white men. Uh, that's number one. Uh, if you look at the hiring numbers for, for black journalists, for Latino journalists, for, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, for uh, Asian American or Native American journalists, all of those lag behind the population of the communities that, that these news organizations serve. You know, we, you know, uh, you know, we still have a majority white newsroom in a city where white people are not the majority, and that's true of most papers, not just for the Philadelphia Inquirer. And so that's got to change. And there's also there are clearly pay disparities where, um, you know, white, white journalists have gotten more merit raises and get better pay. So it's way past time to look at all of these things. And, and I think, you know, what, what happened what happened with uh, the dismissal or resignation, I guess, of our editor. And, and uh, uh, I mean, I think that's a signal that we're going to start looking at some of these other issues. And all I can say, it's, it's way past time to do that. You can read Will Bunch's new column at the Philadelphia Inquirer and also subscribe to his newsletter. Will, thanks for coming on. Brian, thank you so much. It was my pleasure. David, let's end with a word about the New York Times. When his brother was running for president, James Bennett, the editor of the Times editorial page, recused himself from coverage. Now Bennett has recused himself from the New York Times completely. Because on Wednesday, Bennett's digital op-ed page published a piece by Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton that called for the use of military force against protesters. More on the process behind that op-ed in a minute. Over 800 employees of the company signed a letter sent to top editors and executives protesting the op-ed's publication. And on Sunday, David Bennett resigned. Kind of a wow moment. 
What did you make of that when you first heard about his resignation? Well, I was surprised. I mean, I, 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 um, from everything we had come to know about the New York Times and the editorial page there in particular, uh, James Bennett was um, doing the job he was had been hired to do, right? I mean, and that's inclusive of the Tom Cotton editorial. Take issue with it or whatever. I mean, and you can see, you know, there's Barry Weiss who's taken her licks in, in any discussion of the New York Times over the past couple of years this, on this podcast included is out there defending it or, 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 or uh, you know, lamenting the decision for Bennett to step down. Um, as are many like-minded people, the note about his resignation was, was nothing if not, uh, I mean, it was rather effusive in discussing Bennett's positive characteristics and, and the contributions he'd made to the paper. All that just goes to say, like, you know, as sort of deplorable as that op-ed was, it didn't really occur to me that like anybody who had any control over his employment situation would have been offended. Yeah. And, you know, I think Bennett's initial response to this was to defend it on that very familiar set of terms. Right. You know, even even arguments that are painful and dangerous, he wrote on Twitter, uh, deserve public scrutiny and debate. That was his initial response. Well, then in a meeting with staff members, Bennett admitted something else that he had not read the piece before it was published. And then shortly afterwards, the time issued the time, excuse me, issued a statement saying that the piece fell short of the newspaper standards. Now there's this huge editor's note at the top that says, quote, the published piece presents as facts, assertions about the role of cadres of left-wing radicals like Antifa. In fact, those allegations have not been substantiated and have been widely questioned. Editors should have sought further corroboration of those assertions or remove them from the piece. The assertion that police officers, quote, bore the brunt of the violence is an overstatement and should have been challenged as well. Peace did not wind up in the print edition of the New York Times. There's so many things going on here, sort of interlocking things, I think, at the same time. One is a little bit of the power of employees at a place like the New York Times that we just talked about with Jamel, right? Getting together and tweeting about this piece and saying, this sucks. This is terrible. And we're not going to grumble about that we're going to get together and actually put that out on twitter and bring that not only to the times's attention but to the public's attention number one number two is this very old way i think of thinking about ideas like this that has persisted through journalism where you have opinion editors who are publishing stories that they do not themselves believe right ideas that they might even find offensive to get a reaction from people and mm-hmm. then kind of going up, oh, that's it. You know, well, hey, I don't believe any of this. These my ideas might even be dangerous, but I guess I will put it on the op-ed page. That's a very old idea of opinion writing and opinion commissioning. And it just, it feels to me like we may have reached the end of that era and that that's not going to work anymore. And that thinking about the consequences of what you're publishing a little bit more and not just saying, well, this is an incendiary idea. Oh, well, that's not going to fly. What do you think? Well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think that my, I think that that calculus that gets you to publish a piece for that reason is just inherently destructive, frankly. I mean, it's, it's a bad idea. And I, and I think it's a, I don't think it's a good one. I I don't, I, I agree with the idea that with the notion that, you know, that all that, that, that even, uh, you know, 
even ideas you disagree with should be voiced so that they can be argued. All that is true. I mean, I don't I think the people that that loop this op ed into that argument are deliberately sort of missing the forest for the trees. That this there's a lot of reasons, there are a lot of problems with that bigger than it having a different ideological point of view, right? I mean, there I mean that was that was the least least of the offenses of what Tom Cotton wrote. But I do think that there is a I think to a certain extent there is the presumption of the op-ed page, um, be it the way that people sort of have historically talked about the New York Times. You think about the way people have talked about, you know, David Brooks at the New York Times over the past decades, right? Think of the way that, pe- that people talk about the Wall Street Journal op-ed page vis-a-vis like the actual news coverage. I mean, the Washington Post, the same way. I think there's a sort of intimation, at least on the left, that Papers like the Times and the Washington Post let the real ideology sneak out through the op-ed pages, or that certain that, that certain powers that be are letting this sort of, you know, the id or whatever seep through through the op-ed pages. And I think that whether or not that's true, that that sort of preconceived notion hurt the New York Times now more than anything else. I mean, more than anything except the content of the uh, of the op-ed, because there's this presupposition that James Bennett or whoever's calling the shots there wanted this thing published, not as an intellectual exercise, but as a trial balloon. You know, I mean, I think that a lot of people saw it that way. And I don't know that, uh, I don't know that I necessarily buy into that, but I think of all of the problematic op-eds that we've discussed on this show and my general distaste for like getting people fired for just doing something for like messing up at their jobs. I think this is about as, problematic and in some ways is clear-cut an instance uh as i could imagine what do you make of this chris i mean yeah it would be one thing i think if this mistake was disconnected from the issues that people had with james bennett at large right but this was just the most hyperbolic version of the mistake that all of his critics have been talking about for years, right? You know, this is Brett Stevens putting climate denialism in in the section, but way worse. This is, you know, all of the Barry Weiss columns, but worse. This is like, you know, it, it would be easy to say, oh, like it's it's one mistake and he didn't read it and it was just a failure of the editorial system. But, you know, this is just the the result of the editorial system that he set up on purpose. And also, you know, maybe that is on the Salzburgers as well. Uh, you know, there was a Ben Smith piece in BuzzFeed last year before he was at the Times. And he talked to someone who, you know, a source within the Times. And that person was like, oh, yeah, AG sees the page views and the attempt to be more centrist. And he loves that. And so this is like, you know, I agree that this is the wrong strategy to take. Uh, and I hope that this forces the Times to reconsider where their opinion section is going. But I think it's disingenuous to say that this isn't what they wanted the whole time, right? Yeah, I, I think there was this moment a couple years ago where you saw this at The Atlantic, you saw this at The Times and The Washington Post, where there was this huge number in the growth of opinion pieces, like thousand word takes essentially on a daily that they were just churning them out on a daily basis. And in fact, one of the reforms you saw on the, on the, after the Bennett thing was we're just going to publish fewer of these things 
because when you scale up that much, I think you are probably just going to have a certain number of bad. You're just encouraging bad takes, right? To both fill out the number and also to get a quote unquote idea of balance in there, right? With all your columnists. So I think, I think that's just, I do think that's absolutely what they wanted. They wanted tons of just tons of opinion pieces every single day. And I don't know how many of those, a lot of them on the times are quite good. I don't know how many of those you can get that are actually going to be really great on a daily basis at that scale. I really don't. Also, the big thing here, right, is, I mean, they they don't have fact checkers. And, and this is clear that you just, you have to have that. You, you can't, I, I, you know, the, obviously the Times pretty publicly cut most of their copy desk uh, a few years ago at this point, right? But that's a thing that we prioritize here at The Ringer, right? Everything that goes up goes through a fact check. And I mean... Obviously, at this scale, you can't fact check literally everything, but I would think that something coming from a senator at a time like this would go through a fact checker. And I mean, the idea that nothing gets a look, that just seems absurd to me. I know that this section in particular wants to minimize the editing process, but uh, that seems silly. The whole business of Bennett saying, I didn't see the op-ed was maybe maybe not the i think i think that may have in the end been one of the things that just functionally resulted in him leaving the times because i understand there's this whole thing of i can't read every single word especially when you have that kind of scale i'm talking about on a daily basis right it's not just two printed pages anymore it's tons of tons of verbiage but when something like this happens when something like this gets through and you say well i didn't read it You've just at that point, you've sort of abdicated your your role as editor, right? I didn't read it. I didn't take a look at this to make sure that when I'm publishing this this fairly incendiary piece that it was okay. I just didn't do it. Yeah, and I mean, this wasn't just like some like offensive or dangerous thought that was like slipped into a random piece from a random freelancer, right? You could have seen this coming pretty obviously. If anyone said the words Tom Cotton and Slack. I feel like that should have been a, a kind of a tip off to him that he should be checking that out. <laughs> well, yeah. and I don't, and, and I think that what we, I mean, we talked about this last show, the great sin here. Well, I mean, w- one of the most significant sins here is giving him the space, right? I mean, I, I don't, I mean, is, is giving him platform to say the things that you've already heard him say in the New York times, right? He should have read it. That's his job as the editor, but saying, yes to this op-ed is the problem, right? I don't, I don't think there was, I mean, I don't think anybody would have been, would, would have suspected that Tom Cotton was going to moderate his views that he had publicly espoused when he sat down to type this thing out or have it, you know, clearly have a staffer type it out for the New York Times, right? You don't have to read it to know, what, know that what was in there was problematic. And, and I mean, that also leads to the issue of like, when you're talking about the marketplace of ideas, but then you don't actually carefully define like what your objective is, right? If you're kind of like uh, just shrugging off any moral responsibility, then how are you going to know like what's acceptable or not? Like James Bennett, he had a meeting with staffers in late 2018 that got leaked to the Huffington Post to Ashley Feinberg. And there they were talking about like the Richard Spencer test as being like, Oh, how do you decide what's like outside of the bounds of what you can publish? And at the end of this, you know, long spiel that he goes on about that, he says, 
oh, you know, it's not a giant movement. It's referring to like, you know, the white supremacist movement. And then here's the clearest illustration of, okay, well, what if the abhorrent thing is a giant movement, right? Mm-hmm. And if you never answer that question, you're going to run into this problem, right? Like, and that was just, you know, James Bennett, to me, the biggest problem with his tenure is he just abdicated responsibility there. Yeah, and I, I completely agree. And as we said on the last show, I just think like there was a great place, great vehicle for Tom Cotton's views in the New York Times. It's called a New York Times news story, right? Mm-hmm. A new a news story that examined it and and that that held it up to skepticism uh, and reporting. That was it. And and the idea that this two day old tweet in neutered form became an op ed is still just absolutely mysterious to me. I don't get it at all. But uh, as you mentioned, David, James Bennett was a guy who was not only well liked at the New York Times, he was a guy who was seen as potentially running the paper mm-hmm. when Dean McKay leaves. That ain't happening anymore. That's the press box. He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis, researched by Chris Almeida, whose voice you just heard. Production magic by Erica Cervantes. We're back Thursday. See you then, David. See you later, Brian. <laughs>